1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion, that's Bob Dylan's phrase, in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text, sometimes from a novel, I Love Possessed, sometimes from a movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, sometimes from a song, Telstar, for example, sometimes from the Bible, Perfect Love Casts Out Fear, sometimes from a TV show, Tonight's story will be a thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different, something entertaining, something even, well, blood-transfusing. This is a summer supplement podcast, and it tells the story of the American novelist James Gould Cousins. Uh, One of uh, uh, my correspondents uh, pointed out the other day that I keep referring to Cousins' work in these podcasts, but haven't actually said much about him or actually anything about him. And uh, it seems right to uh, present a little bit of a summary of the life of this remarkable American literary figure. Not only is his life intrinsically interesting and his books, particularly his classic 1957 novel, By Love Possessed, not only is the uh, man and his work of intrinsic intrinsic interest, but because he was torpedoed in 1958 and never recovered and for 20 years basically lay fallow with one significant exception, for 20 years he lay fallow dead in the water after being torpedoed by critics in 1958. Uh, He's a fascinating case in uh, a a literary star that is first neglected, then discovered, then has a meteoric rise, and then a meteoric descent. And he instructs us a lot about life, which he himself would not have been surprised to find. But it's, a, it's sort of a tragic story, and it's also a story of, uh, of a great talent and a tremendous vision and philosophical vision of reality that is as good as it gets, in my opinion, although it misses one particular dimension. And this dimension was missing, uh, actually, by uh, Cousins' own Admission. Now, let me tell you the brief story of this, of this life. Uh, every life is interesting. Your life is interesting. There's not a single life here uh, of anyone listening to this broadcast that couldn't be made into a remarkable uh, movie and portrait. Because deep down under the skin, we all are cut from the same cloth. We all are one, and therefore, with all the different permutations of life experience and DNA and experience and circumstance and environment and so forth and so on, um, we not only are all aspiring to some kind of hopeful belovedness and some kind of sense of place in the earth or where we fit in, uh, but we also can learn from any other human being of all shapes and sizes. 
and backgrounds, colors, uh, and appointments, and uh, uh, ideas and perspectives. Everybody has something to teach us. Now, the life of James Gould Cousins, I think, has an awful lot to teach us. This a man was born uh, in 1903 from what um, his mother regarded as kind of a blue blood sort of Tory fled to Canada during the American Revolution, then came back kind of a blue blood old Episcopal squirearchy family. Now this was obviously something that that his mother held very dear because I don't think his father, who died young, thought much about these things. And in fact. Cousins wears it lightly. It's simply a fact about his life. He comes out of a kind of wasp uh, experience of life, though they had no money because the dad had died when uh, Cousins was uh, at boarding school, and so he was basically a scholarship student forever and finally uh, dropped out of college, Harvard College, because he had no money. So uh, there's no money in this situation except much later because of the success of one particular book. But his mother perpetuated the myth which cousins accepted and grew up with that they came from some kind of waspish uh, Connecticut slash uh, Newport, Rhode Island uh, a fancy background. And indeed, he did go to private school early. He was uh, uh, baptized and uh, educated in the bosom of uh, the Episcopal Church, St. Mary's on Staten Island, a beautiful church which is still active, and uh, entered Kent School where he uh, encountered the very famous and redoubtable Frederick Henry Sill the Order of the Holy Cross Episcopal monk of an amazing man who Cousins in his older age wrote a beautiful portrait of, uh, a remarkable uh, boarding school, prep school, private school head. Um, those of us who grew up in Washington knew Canon Charles Martin. Others knew a very famous figure at the Choate School. And many of these uh, really outstanding uh, East Coast and other coast um, preparatory schools <clears throat> were begun or prospered or or endured through uh, by virtue of a single um, vision from a single individual, often a religious man, as for example the uh, uh, the, uh, the the famous uh, uh, crowning head of Lawrenceville School when uh, Thornton Wilder was a master there. Often in that era, they were Episcopal clergy or had a religious bent that was tied in with their genuine vision for boys, for young people, and sometimes in certain schools for girls. But in any event, we're talking 1916. He goes to does quite well there and enters Harvard in 1922. Unfortunately, he had no money, and he was sort of he was sort of uh, <clears throat> drawn toward the kind of preppy final club subculture that was so strong in those days, and he uh, he couldn't really afford it. And when he got a bid from the Porcellian Club, uh, so goes the story, he realized that he couldn't possibly afford the initiation fee and other aspects of living that style of life, and he dropped out. But that's probably purely ironic on the part of his own telling of his story with myth, because the real uh, reason he actually uh, dropped out was because he uh, became successful as a writer in college. It was only in his first year that he uh, wrote a novel called Confusion, which is a very confused novel, and which Cousins later um, uh, did, did not want to recognize as part of his canon. And uh, all of a sudden, this sophomore at Harvard became a relatively successful, uh, suddenly appearing, um, talented novelist, although the book wasn't good, and I've read parts of it, and I don't think it is very good. It's very, very young. But nevertheless, uh, he realized he could become successful possibly as a writer, and he had a real vocation. We learned from his diaries that James Gould Cousins 
had a kind of uh, absolutely compelling, compuncted, to use his great word, um, vocation to to be a full-time writer, which he did. But of course, he, he didn't have any uh, way to pursue this, so initially he wrote, but he took odd jobs in, in uh, Nova Scotia and uh, went to be a tutor to some American expatriate uh, uh, plantation sugar magnet people down in Cuba, went to France and became a tutor in Europe, Europe, uh, about which he wrote a later a sensational book called uh, Ask Me Tomorrow, and he sort of hobnobbed among the relatively uh, wealthy East Coast families of that day, uh, uh, but uh, was entirely dependent on their generosity, and it was hard for him. He then actually spent a year uh, in the uh, vicar, the, the vicar, the, the at a chapel, uh, a a, a, a a chapel of St. Thomas Church, the famous, beautiful St. Thomas Episcopal Church, where Judy Garland and Robert Walker find themselves ultimately married in the sight of God in that extraordinary movie called The Clock from World War II. And uh, they, uh, these Episcopal churches in those days often had uh, sort of chapels that the wealthier parishes would establish, like mission churches. We would call them sort of church plants in uh, urban priority areas. Uh, and... Um, uh, they were really very well-intentioned, but on fairly thin ice, because they were almost always in communities that were blue-collar and not Episcopalian by uh, anything else but sort of Rice Christian uh, sensitivities or experience. So he did see, however, a very fine Episcopal chapel uh, of St. Thomas Church uh, way downtown, uh, and uh, was exposed to some excellent, really refined, but also very sincere uh, Episcopal clergymen like Killian Stimson, who later uh, was out at the Oranges in New Jersey, and uh, Dubes, um, David Dubes, who was a um, tremendously effete and and yet also very sincere Episcopal priest, and uh, he was sort of in the bosom of uh, of uh, uh, Episcopalian uh, do-goodism with a kind of uh, intellectual basis that was attractive. And his novel Men and Brethren, which he wrote during the Depression, which I so think so highly of about Episcopal clergy is probably, in my opinion, at this point, one of the two most persuasive accounts of what it's really like to be an Episcopal minister, even today. The other one being, as you know, The Green Light by uh, Lloyd Douglas, which came out almost exactly at the same time as Men and Brethren. Um, cousins married uh, Sylvia Bernice Baumgarten in, uh, at the end of December 1927. Now, she was a literary agent just beginning, and she became a very powerful and important literary agent in, with Brant and Brant in uh, New York City and eventually became one of the leading uh, literary agents of, of New York City. And uh, they were married forever, and uh, they um, uh, had a happy marriage, albeit childless. And I can sort of see why, because Cousins really, his view of life was very sour, and uh, uh, she um, had her own various reasons, and I think they're they're, uh, I think they wanted to have children initially, but they were not given them, and then they kind of rationalized it uh, in especially some comments he made towards the end of his life. But sadly, no children, no one to look after you when you're dying and when your wife has died. But he married Sylvia, or S, as Cousins calls her in his diaries, and uh, Sylvia was Jewish. And I only point that out because later on when uh, Cousins was accused of the cardinal sin of anti-Semitism because of some remarks that are made by one one particular uh, bigoted but also very, very st old man, one step ahead from Alzheimer's character, Noah Tuttle, in uh, 1957. 
by Love Possessed, the stigma of anti-Semitism uh, was attached to Cousins and basically destroyed his career. Um, and uh, he was, in fact, not so. Uh, we know this from a number of remarks he made prior to all this, but mainly his, his only, being a hermit, his only real friend, his only real confidant in life, except for his sister-in-law to some extent and his mother, uh, was Sylvia Baumgarten. And uh, so the charge really doesn't stick, and this was later on pointed out way after it was too late, by 1983, by Joseph Epstein, the editor of The American Scholar, who said, uh, you know, anyone who believes that this man was anti-Semitic in himself uh, doesn't recognize the uh, facts of his circumstances. He married a liberal Democrat, uh, a secular uh, Jew, and here he um, was uh, supposedly out of this waspish background, but uh, zero cash. Now, uh, they lived in the village, and uh, he wrote a number of uh, books, and he actually, in uh, 1929, moved into 325 East 79th Street, uh, which touches me no end, because that's where I was a boy uh, for a couple years in New York City. And and um, uh, I always knew there was something holy about that apartment building. But there it is. And he lived there with uh, Bernice for a while, Sylvia. And then he wrote his first novel, San S.S. San Pedro, about a, about a ship that sort of goes down and everyone, most people are killed on it because of a, a completely um, disturbed and uh, deceived uh, captain. Uh, it's a downer, but very well written. And then he wrote a book called The Last Adam. Now, this book, The Last Adam, was what I'm not got me going. It was published in 1933, and I got into this because um, John Ford had uh, uh, directed a movie uh, in about 1935 starring Will Rogers entitled Dr. Bull. And when I saw the uh, movie Dr. Bull with Will Rogers by John Ford, which isn't that great, I noticed two things. I noticed there were several very literary references. In particular, there was a reference in the script to Pilgrim's Progress, and there was a very sort of sideways reference to Thornton Wilder. And there was a woman, a young woman who's a telephone uh, operator, who's extremely impressive. She's the most impressive character in the whole movie, and she's a reader. She's always putting in these quotes from high culture, and they're very sincere and very well-placed. And then at the end, uh, so I said, golly, I better read the book this is based on, because there it was, The Last Adam by James Gould Cousins. So about a year and a half ago, I got the book out of the library and uh, read it, and what really struck me was his portrait of the Episcopal Church. I said, this guy understands. He, it's a sort of an old low church parish in New Winton, Connecticut, outside of New Haven. The sort of upper end of the demographics attend the Episcopal Church, and it's currently being piloted by a rector of Anglo-Catholic persuasion who is, uh, uh, is in waging an all-out total krieg uh, to, get the, uh, to get the church to move from its sort of informal, good-hearted, low church liturgical ways and other to move to uh, a strict Anglo-Catholic and he's doing it <clears throat> basically by subterfuge, this uh, Anglo-Catholic rector, and he succeeds. But in the course of this description, which has happened in about a trillion Episcopal churches where some high church rector with a very strong uh, perspective and ideological attachment to a certain approach sort of devotes his entire energies to what uh, later on uh, cousins would say called little Anglo-Catholic problems. In other words, they loom very large to the rector, but in light of the tragedies of life all around the church, they seem relatively intellectual or cerebral or fussy. <clears throat> the reason I say it is because Cousins, at the end of 
the last Adam, portrays the daughter of the well-born, the well-born daughter of the senior warden, who, with his wife, is sort of the leading family in the town, and poor Mr. Banning, the old Mr. Banning. Remember that in all the mummy movies, the archaeologist is always called John Banning. Anyway, uh, that also endeared me to the book, but uh, young Virginia Banning is in the process of leaving the church. She's only 16. Her mother's the head of the altar guild or involved with it, and her father is basically believes out of deference to his deceased mother, out of duty entire and tremendous skepticism within. And uh, during a deep inner colloquy within Virginia Banning, who's only 16 and has suffers a very tragic fate in this book, The Last Adam, which is about a typhoid epidemic in this New England, southern New England town, New Winton, she, uh, it goes into why she would never go to the church again. And as I read this passage about Virginia Banning at the end of The uh, Last Adam, it, my eyes were opened to a number of parishes I've served and lived where the sort of baby boomer and earlier generation dropped out from the old Episcopal church. And I'm constantly, and many will confirm this, bearing people of sort of in their 80s and 90s who passed away, but their children who are in their sort of late 40s to early 60s um, don't uh, have any connection with the church except rather negative feelings that they were dragged to the church or it was superficial and they only went because their parents took them out of duty and they saw no real sort of uh, witness or light in their parents' lives except angry, petty, fighting about going to church on Sunday. And so the children who are roughly my age, late 50s, dropped out. So I'm constantly burying people who, from these old, once aristocratic, uh, at least in their own regard, families whose <clears throat> children uh, not only uh, have not been to the church since <clears throat> confirmation or their wedding days, which ended usually in dissolution, but also um, they uh, they have an active antagonism to the church. So uh, this was a frequent effect in uh, various parishes, especially in the Northeast where I've served. So Cousins illuminated what goes on in such people when he talks about why Virginia, and this is in the 1930s, will probably never go to church again after her mother has died. Now, so I began to read and uh, these things uh, and uh, was very touched by Men and Brethren, by Ask Me Tomorrow, by Cousins' novel called The Just and the Unjust about the law in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and a trial that goes south, but in a very interesting way. But it's really a Bildungsroman, that is to say, it's really a study of how Abner Coates, the young uh, district attorney who's in his late 30s, hasn't married yet and wants to, <clears throat> and he sort of comes to what it is to be an adult through a trial that goes sour at the end, and he learns a great deal. Um, then um, all this time, Cousins and Sylvia were living in a stone uh, 1818 farmhouse outside of Lambertville, New Jersey, which is right across the river from uh, Philadelphia, the suburbs, Doylestown across the river, uh, which functions as Childersburg in The Just and the Unjust, and Lambertville, uh, which is sort of a smaller version of the uh, Brockton PA, which will become the cockpit of the great achievement of James Gould Cousins in 57 by Love Possessed. But after he wrote The Just and the Unjust, the war intervened, and uh, he was living in isolation in Lambertville, New Jersey, and I've been to his house. I actually recently was up uh, performing a wedding near there, and I took the liberty of driving over and finding the house. And I've written about it on the Lloyd Fonville's blog, www.mardecortez, uh, that's M-A-R-D-E-C-O-R-T-S-B-A-J-A, 
mardecortezbaja.com. I wrote an article and a photo essay about the trip, and I found the, uh, the, the house, and it's sadly declined, but therein lies a tale. And uh, they lived there actually until 1958, when the terrible blow that fell in early 58 because of the critics who accused him of uh, racism <clears throat> as a result of uh, uh, By Love Possessed. Uh, I'm, I would have moved too. He wanted to get out of Dodge, and he moved first to uh, uh, the northern neck of Virginia, eastern shore, I should say, and then up to Williamstown, where he lived in a house called Shadowbrook on Oblong Road for several years. Now, um, uh, in the war, he came down to Florida, where he was the uh, kind of a, a PR guy at the Pentagon first, and then at a, a large uh, naval base in Orlando, where he saw the Air Force, uh, the Army Air Force as it was called then, in its deepest colors really quite positively during World War II. And he served as a major and uh, did very well in his job and the journals have been published. But he, the result of this uh, four-year period in the U.S. Air Force where he saw things because of his high literary quality of observation and his great talent for writing speeches, he got in the inner circle of the command of the United States Air Force during a time of tremendous stress. And a book came out of it that was published in 1948 called Guard of Honor, which many people believe is Cousins' greatest work. It's really about life on a, on a, uh, on a training Air Force base near Orlando in which a couple of terrible crises occur. Uh, and it's a novel about providence, it's a novel about how uh, there are 50 major characters in this very lengthy novel, and they, uh, they all intersect because he saw reality as kind of an odd, uh, the Buddhists call it dependent arisings, uh, we might call it, uh, that is to say, uh, speaking here as a Christian, we might call it uh, uh, the providence of God that works through most mysterious and multiform ways. Uh, in this novel, a kind of providential action occurs on two fronts in which people's characters are illuminated, some great good happens, some terrible tragedies are spared, and a couple of terrible tragedies occur. And uh, there's also a very high philosophical and reflective dimension to it, especially when you get into sort of the 400s. It's a lengthy novel. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1949, and many people regard it as his masterpiece. And I think probably from the standpoint of overall ambition, I would agree with them. I've read these books time and time again, underlining them, and I would probably agree with that assessment. However, he then went silent in his t uh, house up in uh, Lambertville, which is so interesting to see, but you can barely get in there because there's a lot of posted signs of no trespassing, and I had to talk my way in very unsuccessfully, but briefly, but enough to, to see it uh, recently. Um, he then uh, published, uh, took a, what appeared to be a, an eight, eight, nine-year break, and By Love Possessed came out in 1957. Now, this novel, which is a very, very philosophical novel of 49 hours in the life of a man named Arthur Winter Jr., an attorney, a very, very Aristotelian, collected, gifted, moderate, uh, almost priggish, but not quite, somewhat condescending, but very, very wise professional man. 49 hours in his life. Uh, a number of things happened to, uh, to question this man's hold on uh, secure uh, perspectives on living and safe ones. And finally, in the 49th hour, uh, due to some revelations, uh, his entire life uh, completely flattens, mainly inside himself, because it's a remarkable inner dialogue of a man wrestling with 
unsupportable but undeniable facts. And in the course of the last five pages, where he marches through his childhood town of Brockton, PA, walks from, from a, after church, where he was the usher and soon to be junior warden, and it's very, very, the Episcopal Church is, is described in devastating and, and also very positive. This is a very good Episcopal minister, but it's observed. Let's just put it that way. The Episcopal Church of that era is observed uh, with tremendous insight, in my opinion, and perceptive diagnosis. But anyway, at the end of it, the hero uh, learns something about life that is quite different from what he started out thinking, and it's expressed with high poetry and tremendous layers of what is today called nuance. I would call it simply meditative introspection that is uh, courageous enough to go uh, the whole way. So this uh, book came out, and uh, he... Um, it was he was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, he was hailed by people like Brendan Gill of the New Yorker and many others as sort of one of the great twentieth century novels. However, the same thing happened to James Gould Cousins as happened in a slightly different way, just to write at that time to Jack Kerouac, whose novel On the Road was spoken of almost in comparable terms by the uh, critics everywhere, uh, because there was an immediate reaction. First, because uh, he was so successful, and people always get mad at people who are successful. Secondly, and uh, very to the point, he allowed himself not to read the proofs, even though he was given the right to, to read uh, the interview that had been uh, attained by him in his uh, hermit-like seclusion in Lambertville, and he um, he didn't take the time, and he later admitted it with great ruefulness, it really wrecked his life. He didn't take the time to read the account of the interview. Now, the interviewers, it turned out, were out to get him. They, they, there was, they were sort of the first wave, two interviewers, and they, they put a portrait of him who used a lot of irony and jokes and sort of the kind of clubby witticisms that we might have associated with someone who, who uh, had lived in the Harvard world of 1922, you know. Uh, but uh, he, uh, he, uh, he, he was misunderstood and he tried to get a little funny with some reporters who weren't amused and had no sense of irony. And worst of all, when Henry Luce said, look, Jim, read this. I, I, you really have to read this to tell us if you really meant what you said or were these off-the-record comments. Well, he didn't do it. And he made a couple of extraordinarily unfortunate comments about African-Americans, about um, women, um, about Jews in respect to his having married a Jew and his uh, mother having been upset. Uh, they were, and, and sex, he made, he just portrayed himself through a series of ironic comments, most of which he later denied ever having been made. But they said they were, uh, he, he, he much later said the reporters had taken bits of offhanded paraphrases, which he meant ironically because there is no trace of uh, racism towards African Americans in his book. In fact, uh, Guard of Honor is about the end of racial segregation in the United States military. And similarly, the uh, Jewish character uh, uh, against whom one very old and uh, very fading uh, kind of uh, guy uh, makes negative comments turns out to be extremely smart and basically saves the day. 
uh, in the middle of the of the novel by Love Possessed. And uh, Cousins himself, who um, uh, was uh, uh, was married to Sylvia Baumgarten, uh, as he said later, I'm neither pro this or con that. I'm simply here to say what I see. And this is how he described, and it's the one quote in the Time 1958 interview that is, actually it was 1957 interview, I think it was uh, in November 57. You can look it up. Uh, the one thing he said that was good is he said, uh, uh, my philosophy, I have no philosophy except the following. Most people get a raw deal from life, and to me, life is what life is. Now, um, this was actually, he was a completely non-ideological person. And for someone like me, who's religious, I keep wanting to, I keep wanting cousins to sort of get underneath the religious vision, not just to describe Episcopalian clergy and lay people and vestrymen and bishops and that sort of thing. I want him to get underneath uh, and sort of understand what it means to be a believer. And he wrote to his mother in 1935, I just can't do it. I've been with these people all my life. I've gone to chapel and prep schools all my life. Etc. Etc. I've gone to my family has clergy. I've been to a million services, but I can't get in it. He actually said at one point that he wished he could be C.S. Lewis, uh, because C.S. Lewis obviously had gotten underneath it, and he could never get inside it. So you have a man here who is in fact an observer, a rather um, cynical, but. Um, where he gives credit where credit is due and all of his great characters end up becoming better, you might say, or or more resigned in an equable, harmonious, and even ultimately loving sense than they began. But uh, this uh, interview in time caused a reaction and then Dwight MacDonald in the January edition of Commentary magazine accused him of all the things that I've already mentioned and also described his style, which is highly inward, as being Baroque, florid, and convoluted to the extreme and pretentious. And then by excerpting certain passages out of context, he made it seem true. And while Cousins is highly florid when he's uh, describing the internecine dialogue of florid and complex people who don't quite know what they're getting at in their thinking, uh, as a whole, I find his style very true to the inward dialogue that I at least have. I, identi- I feel the dialogue that Arthur Winter has, because I see it in myself. I see it in people I love. I see it in many others. Not in everybody, but in many. To me, it's true. Anyway, after Dwight McDonald's uh, uh, slashing attack, uh, that was the end of James Gould Cousins. And uh, he claimed after, you know, people after 10 years, they said, what's happened? And he said, well, nothing really happened. I just kind of kind of sat. They made a movie with Lana Turner and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Of my, I got paid a lot of money. I became very successful. I l- read my reviews and I did a lot of reading of Mary McCarthy and, and John Galsworthy and Somerset Maugham and, and Addison and Steele and Samuel Johnson and Shakespeare. But in fact, Nothing happened. He became depressed, and he finally later on admitted it in his Williamstown diaries. I really hint. I, I'm still, I'm just totally focused on this attack, especially that this attack that labeled me as a racist. I, I can't recover from this. I've, I don't understand why they did this to me. What did I do to deserve this? And albeit the interview had brought it on himself when he wrote, he wrote much later a very self-penitent uh, 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 commentary on the review and how terribly he'd been misunderstood and how he didn't mean it and mainly how 
how it was his fault for being so lazy and arrogant that he didn't check when he had the chance these uh, ironic comments that were meant and were not in keeping with the man at all, although he was not Mr. Sweetheart. He was definitely not Mr. Rogers. Brendan Gill said he was so, uh, so focused on his own solitude that he could be accused possibly of truculence. Uh, and uh, maybe it was George Garrett who said that, but I think it was, uh, I think it was uh, the other man. I'm pretty sure it was Brendan Gill. Uh, now, there we are. He did nothing. He uh, moved to, to Williamstown. He uh, published some short stories, which are all old. And then uh, he wrote a concluding novel of sort of old age entitled Morning, Noon, and Night, which is actually very good, or rather has some great passages about Cousins looking back on his life. Uh, but it lacks a certain kind of profound interpretation or philosophical understanding of the remarkable anecdotes he tells. I would say half the book is inspired and half is uh, is rather... Uh, is, is, is really um, shreds and patches. It doesn't really come to kind of anything. And when he tries to sum it up at the end using a canaletto painting of, of, some, uh, of some old Roman aqueduct ruins, it doesn't quite work. Uh, he died uh, on the 9th of August, 1978, uh, very soon after his wife uh, died, and she died in January of the same year down in Rio slash Stewart. Florida. Now, that's the life of James Gould Cousins. Um, it shows you that you can have a great insight and you can be just done to death. And people are people. They are human beings. And no one has, they say, well, oh, I have a thick skin. Well, Cousins thought he had a thick skin, but he never recovered after the howling attacks on him from Irving Howe and uh, Dwight MacDonald and uh, uh, you ne John Updike. He never recovered. He was a human being, too and uh, a little bit of alcohol and uh, a terrible automobile accident he was involved in in Williamstown and uh, uh, the uh, uh, sad uh, uh, neglect slash excoriation that met him. It's a very um, real story of life. I recommend By Love Possessed and I'm going to do a podcast on it. I want to conclude also that the one thing that's missing, and I'm just about to finish, the one thing that's missing in uh, James Gould Cousins' work is a satisfactory attempt to understand things in sort of metacritical terms. Now don't get me wrong, that's not what he was about. He was not a philosopher, but there is so much philosophy in his books, and he deals with the Episcopal Church, at least, so consistently. There is so much about the Episcopal Church and vocation and clergy that you want him to sort of, at some point, sort of, you wish, I should rather say, that he would reflect a little bit on sort of ultimates. Uh, Jack Kerouac started doing this uh, uh, in 1953 when his life fell apart and he began to read Asphagosha, the uh, Buddhist uh, mystical writer and philosopher, um, you wish that uh, this man had, just for my sake, maybe for his sake, but certainly for mine, that he'd been able to just to take it, ratchet it one more step up and sort of say, what's this all about? What is, is it purely meaningless? Is there absolutely nothing to it? Is it just a dark, enigmatic curtain? Surely his characters, almost all of whom re-up or re-enlist to live after shocking, debunking, catastrophic, reversing experiences, you often want to say, well, on what 
basis ultimately do they do this? And of course, the sad um, pitching back into complete reclusion that uh, Cousins experienced, coupled with a kind of bitter returning constantly to the scene of the crime, that is, these terrible reviews, which in my view are, are were really uh, full of animus and hatred and malice, actually. They're vindictive in the extreme, and I've, I've read the reviews there. They, they're not really about the book. They're about some person they think has written the book, who has actually just written a portrait, actually a sublime portrait in most cases, of, of, a, of lives gone wrong because of a, a misunderstanding about the nature and um, genesis and enduring and even the effect of, of human love. So that is my uh, talk on the biography of James Cousins, and it's going to be a summer supplement. So now when I talk about him, you won't feel I'm uh, sort of uh, uh, dropping uh, hints out of a clear blue sky. Thank you so very much for listening, and God bless. Thank <laughs> you.